0: Thank you. This is the podcast where we examine strange claims about alternative history and ancient aliens in popular media. Do the claims of water to an archaeologist or are there better explanations out there? We are now on episode 44. I am Frederick, your guide into the world of pseudo-archeology. This time we will look into the origin of the grey aliens. We will learn that this is a rather modern creation but don't turn off the podcast just yet, because there will be some exciting twists and turns along the way. We start far, far from the world of archaeology with the abduction of Betty and Barney Hill. We will look into the alien abduction, their commonalities, and how we can explain many of these experiences. We will also learn some interesting things about the hill abduction case then we will hunt for the historical examples of a gray alien during this travel we will visit the hopi people and discuss their society and religion which can all be seen in their practice of creating these little kachina figures from there we will then move on to peru where we will discuss pyramid elongated skulls and ancient dna we will also disprove Brian Forrester's DNA analysis that he performed a couple of years ago. Now, remember that you find sources, resources, and reading suggestions on our website, diggingupancient.com. There you can also find my contact info if you notice any mistakes or have any suggestions. And if you listen to uh, this show on the Archaeological Podcast Network's main theme, and you like the show, make sure to subscribe to... The Digging Up Ancient Alien feed too, since we have a lot more episodes over there if you want to hear more from me. And now that we've finished all this little preparation, let's dig into the episode. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. <laughs> Now, we start this episode on the famous case of Roswell, a topic that we have discussed in the past with Blake Smith from Monster Talk. I think it's in episode nine. I don't really have anything else to add currently to this case since, uh, well, it's pretty clear it was a weather balloon. And Brian Dunning over at Skeptoid, who has also (laughs) guested the show, has done some amazing research into the Roswell claims. So... I will guide you over there, for now at least, and due to this we will leave the subject. Well, for now, but I think we will return later at one point or another. And next we have a topic that I, well, struggle a little bit with. Not really how to explain the phenomenon, but how to tactfully approach it. And the subject is Alien Abductees often referred to as Alien Abduction Experience, or AAE, in research articles. We will return to the subject with a psychologist when some well schedules start to align with the stars, but I will now softly start by dealing with this topic since, well, it's something they bring up rather often that, and we haven't really dealt with it in the past. And what they say in this particular episode is not well in comparison to the other stuff that they have said in the past, not as harmful. So let's start with maybe the most famous example they bring up here, Barney and Betty Hill incident. A tale that have inspired episodes on The X-File and even a movie starring James Earl Jones and Estelle Parsons in the lead. This case is usually described as the first known UFO abduction. Something that's uh, actually isn't really true. <laughs> there are earlier accounts. For example, Elizabeth Clarer, who tells about being abducted already in 1950. And then we have Antonio Villas-Boas, a Brazilian farmer who claims to have been kidnapped in 1957. And if you want to hear more about the Antonio story, you should check out the members last patron version of this where you get a bit of a extended episode. And to move on, the story about what this claimed to have happened to Barney and Betty Hill starts on September 19th, 1961. The couple was driving back to their home in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, from a vacation over at Niagara Falls and Montreal. The couple had stopped for a late diner in Colebrook, New Hampshire, from where they left around 10 p.m. It was the last stretch of the journey in their 1957 Chevrolet Bel Air. And the air was warm, the heavens were clear. As they went down US Route 3, Betty started to see something and urged Barney to stop the car. Barney parked at a rest stop and the couple watched a luminous object on the far-off horizon. And Betty was convinced that this uh, was an unidentified flying object and she frequently declared her belief to Barney. Remained a a bit more skeptical. He insisted that this was nothing more than just a commercial airplane en route to Montreal. Now, Betty's, um, well, not Betty herself, but Betty's sister actually claimed to have had a UFO encounter previously, a few years earlier, and this probably colored uh, Betty's, uh, well, influenced her commission that she had seen a UFO too this time. The couple is then claimed to have witnessed the light following them on the journey until the light then suddenly forces them to a uh, stop in the middle of the highway. And Barney describes humanoid looking creature with glossy black uniforms and hat, which were kind of leather-like according to him. Then, according to Betty, Barney gets concerned about their safety at one point and uh, starts then to shout, they're going to capture us. And he uh, jumps into the car and then just speeds off into the night. And this is the story, more or less, as the couple initially told the National Investigation Committee on Aerial Phenomena, or NICAP. And, Independent UFO research group formed in 1950s and lasted well into the 1980s. And the Hills reported the sightings just a few days afterward to Richard Hall, who involved the group's maybe lead investigation, Walter Webb. And an interview took place in October 1961 and lasted for about six hours. And you might rightfully point out here that this account don't really contain any gray aliens or even an abduction but if we listen to the well alien abduction proponents as jason martell for example he puts it like this the beings described by Betty and Barney Hill fit the classic case of a grey. Now, there are variations to size and dimensions of these beings, but they all seem to have the same characteristics. Slim, skindily bodies, large oval heads, large oversized eyes. It is true that Betty and Barney Hill do speak about these elements, but they are not added until almost two years later. After this experience, Betty Hill is starting to have nightmare. and she starts to journal these nightmares. And then she goes on to rework her accounts and rewriting these uh, journals and uh, telling Barney about these dreams and experiences for almost two and a half years. However, she did provide an earlier copy to Walter Webb in November of 1961 But it is the 1964 accounts that is the foundation for the myth and legends that we hear today. So in 1964, the Hills had agreed to undergo hypnosis to kind of recover memories as a part of a larger treatment for their anxiety attacks and this was led by dr benjamin simon and dr simon has maybe gotten a bit of the short end of the stick here in the public reimagination of the story more often than not he is just referred to a hypnotist dr simon however was the head of neuropsychiatry at the army's psychiatric center over at mason general hospital there, Dr. Simon was involved in researching what then was referred to as shell shock, more commonly known today as PTSD. And within this research, Dr. Simon experimented with hypnosis to relieve soldiers' uh, soldiers' stress. Hypnosis is, while surrounded by many medical claims, actually a real. Thing. And in clinical studies on pain relief, patients who have been hypnotized report that uh, hypnotis uh, well, help them manage their pain better afterwards. And even better result is found in uh, people who is undergoing stress management treatment, where hypnotists have helped susceptible uh, patients. And I say susceptible since hypnotists don't really work on everybody. The technique most used today was developed over at Stanford and include a sliding scale called the Stanford Hypnotic Susceptibility Scale. So everyone fits on the scale that ranges from 0 to 12. So at 0, you're not susceptible. You will not be able to really be hypnotized. And if you're at 12, you, uh, well, you will most likely find yourself on stage acting like a chicken. And Dr. Simon didn't really put much stock in the UFO stories from the start. His main interest in the Betty and Bonnie Hill case was uh, the couple's severe anxiety and the fact that they were an interracial couple in a period where this wasn't uh, common and in most places even frowned upon. So this is Dr. Simon's reason for being involved with this at the start, and in the, as he points out in the foreword to John G. Fuller's book, The Interrupted Journey, the what interested Dr. Simon was not the UFO story, as I mentioned, but um, quote, Mr. and Mrs. Hills presenting crippling anxiety manifested by him in fairly open fashion and by Mrs. Hill more in the form of repetitive nightmarish dreams. As I mentioned, Dr. Simon didn't really take much stock in what the couple say during the hypnosis. Dr. Simon theorized the couple would be able to unlock their claimed amnesia quicker through the hypnosis compared to traditional therapy. He points out, however, uh, that while being hypnotized, you can still make things up. And, uh, well, he does not seem to believe the story that the couple is telling him during the hypnosis. And today we know that this form of regress memory theory does not really have any effect. And most people who, well, the therapy is the wrong word, but most people who undergo this type of therapy... Uh, Imagine things that happen to them, or make things up, to um, kind of conform with uh, the the hypnosis leading questions. Dr. Simon don't really discuss any of this, but it's a bit of hindsight 2020 for us on this, since afterward the satanic panic and all of this uh, came and started to have uh, people look into the phenomenon a bit more. Now the doctor intended to use a hypnosis session as part of part of a more extensive therapy for the apparent stress presented by the couple as I mentioned Dr Simon did not intend to investigate UFO but he was trying to help them in a medical type of way and i like to add that some of barney's stress seems related to his experience as a afro-american in the predominantly white culture of 1960s and within the recordings of his hypnosis session he often talk about his fear of being subjected to racist acts it's not really unfounded at all i mean it was just a uh, when the ufo adopting took place it was just just a few years after the lynching of uh, Emmett Till over in Mississippi. And I'm sure that there's incidents or heinous acts after that too. Barney gives some insight into his concerns while doing simple things like renting a room at a motel and even entering a restaurant or just walking down in the park. He's wondering, will they be accepted? Will they face racist? Will they be rejected or what will happen in any of these given situations. And I think this is something many people of color with is struggling even to this day. So some stress would, of course, uh, come from this during this era in time. And as I mentioned, most of the later imaginations, movies, uh, TV shows, all of that, that's based on the Hill story, come from this uh, hypnosis sessions. Not the earliest investigation, the interview that they took right after, because that interview did not include these topics. So it is in the recordings of the hypnosis session that we find all these um, all these stories about the medical experiments, the star maps, and the gray alien, and uh, all of that already in, in these tapes. And I want to stress that um, the how they described the look of the alien changed quite a bit throughout the years. From, you remember, the early original leather-wearing humanoid figures that Barney described, Betty goes on and then describes them as short humans with black hair and Jimmy Durante nose, and Barney then, however, changed the story a little bit. He claims that um, on the spaceship he could see a well, not an extraterrestrial being, but a red-headed Irishman. And Doctor Simon asks, um, well, why is the alien look Irish? And Barney answers, "Quote: I think I know why. Because Irish are usually hostile to the N-word." And when I see a friendly Irish person, I react to him by thinking, I will be friendly. And I think this one that is looking over his shoulder is friendly. But a few moments later, this Irish man change. And uh, Barney starts to describe him as a German Nazi with a scarf and leather jacket. However, later during the hypnosis, Barney starts to change their appearance again, and they turn into this thin grey, large black-eyed and bald short creature, which Betty then will pick up on later in her own sessions. Interestingly, as Brian Dunning points out, in April 1962, Twilight episode 30 of season 3 aired, and it had a title Hocus Pocus and Frisbee. In it, we encounter a monster that eerily fits Hill's description and the gray aliens in general a bit too well. So I think the origin of Barney's, uh, well, alien can be found within the Twilight uh, series. And what I find fascinating with the story is that it starts out as a quite simple simple story about a strange light in the sky and then morphs into some sort of full-fledged AAE as time goes by. Even more interesting is that Walter Webb, who was a UFO researcher and well, most likely a believer, don't really believe it. Dr. Simon, the regress memory, theory, hypnosis, did not really buy it either. However, Walter Webb, to believe the first part of the story that they saw light in the sky and it was a spaceship he does not believe the second part of the story the ufo abduction part so just to represent walter Webb accordingly he was not a skeptic in that sense all right so we heard the story now and we look into some of the orders but can we explain these sightings and experiences well It depends for the strange light in the sky. It's hard to really say what precisely they saw because we well we can't go back and see it. The term UFO doesn't necessarily mean you know alien spacecraft, but uh, you know, something in the sky that we can't really yet identify. (laughs) A few things have been suggested for the Hills flying object that they saw in the sky. Most common I encounter is that it was Venus. I found, however, this um, this explanation a little bit lackluster. Um, better answer might be, uh, have been presented in 2007 by the McDonald family. Now they tried to recreate the light, and they you did this by driving down Route Three during the day and at night. And during the night, they did manage to see a light who was following them, and this light. Um, as the McDonald saw it, was um, behaving in the same manner as the Hills described it originally back in 1961. And on a closer examination, they noticed that this light correspond with the, the location of an observation tower up on top of a Cannon Mountain. The tower had a bright light on top of it, and from the look of things, it, well, it seems to be a good candidate for what the hills saw unfortunately the tower was torn down in 2008 and replaced with a new in 2011 and the new tower has a less bright light and since then no recent ufo sightings have been reported on this stretch of route three at least do with that information um, as you like all right how about these alien encounters then how do we explain the abductions here, it would have been even better if we had a psychologist present, but there are several explanations behind the AAE. Some will relate to Betty's nightmares, which we already discussed. Something often left out of this story is that um, abductees are sleeping. Betty Hill's abduction came to them in the dreams after they started to research the UFO phenomenon after they saw a strange light in the sky. And within the Ancient Alien episode titled The Greys, they interview a person who claims to have had a AAE named Kim Carlsberg. And I don't want to get too deep into her story, but Kim claims to also have seen a strange light in the sky. Afterwards, she went to bed and then was abducted. I don't want to go well into Kim's story because... In uh, the episode, The Greys, during the interview, she was, um, well, quite severe signs of distress. And instead of getting the help that she, <laughs> she would need, she is t- instead taking advantage of by the alien abduction proponents and the media companies and authors. So I feel that we should leave her story a bit alone. But again... She had the experiences, not that they came and took her there and then, she, they came when she was sleeping. This is worth to remember for later. And for many of these cases, sleep paralysis is the most likely cause for the person's experiences. We go through different stages during our sleep, including what's called the REM or rapid eye movement stage. And it's during this stage we often have our dreams. And as a, as a safety mechanism, the body locks up to stop you from acting out your dreams. In some cases, people can become aware during these stage, referred to as awareness during sleep paralysis or ASP. During ASP, your body is paralyzed and you're in a sort of dreamlike state, but you're awake in this state about 40 percent of persons experiencing uh, asp have auditory hallucinations and 30 percent of those who have asp report um, visual hallucinations and these hallucinations seem to be heavily culturally influenced so in the past we often hear uh, you know, that it's demons or ghosts who are the culprits behind these um, experiences. So if you're a Slavic person in the Slavic countries, for example, you would be visited by the Vjek. But uh, in other parts of Europe, it might have been the succubus who uh, visit you at night. And these religious or folkloric elements seems to, in our society, have a... Uh, become replaced by aliens and extraterrestrial. And sleep paralysis is not the only sleep-related explanation here. A study by Dr. Wamsley et al. shows that 80% of people that suffering from narcolepsy report dream delusions. And these are dreams that are so, so vivid uh, that they feel real and that people count the difference between what's dream and reality. And I'm sure that some alien abduction can have its origin in these type of dreams. And then we also have a Russian study from 2021, where the author shows that people who can have lucid dreaming or other REM sleep states could actually force themselves to have the experience. So by watching television, reading books or listening to stories, they can get themselves uh, to provoke uh, AAE experiences that uh, resembles what we report from other places. So again, it shows that by consuming this type of media, you can have dreams that feels very real and have these type of elements that we hear in the alien abduction stories. So dreams could be a reasonable explanation for many of these sightings, but there are more hypotheses like... like, uh, Psychopathology. I can see that some might uh, think that people who are reporting AAE are mentally ill, but we should be a bit um, careful and respectful regarding this uh, type of statement and mental illness in general. While, of course, there will be uh, reports that uh, do have a psychopathological disturbance as the source it's uh, important to note that uh, studies performed on these type of experiences don't see any more mental health issues among AAE reporters than the typical population so we should be a bit cautious when we say that people suffering this are mentally ill because more often than than not, this is not the case. And then we have the idea of false memories. When people have experiences that they can't really explain and have these very uh, hard-defined symptoms, they tend to go online and then will notice that if they experience things like missing time or muscle pains and headache, they can have been victims of alien abductions. Now these are symptoms that's very common in the human experiences and our day-to-day life but the people then start to seek up self-proclaimed experts that's way outside the medical and scientific field and they undergo these regress memory therapies again therapy not the right word but and other pseudoscientific method that then plant these as actual memories. So again, we see people who is taken advantage of, that have uh, experiences, but instead of getting proper information, they're again taking advantage of. Most times these uh, therapy sessions cost quite a bit of money. And then we have a rather novel idea by Dr. Newman and others that... Uh, abduction are a way to escape oneself using machoism. To elude the stress in our everyday life, these people create a sort of, well, machoism fantasy, a BDSM fantasy, or perform the acts in reality, where they then disconnect from themselves as a way to deal with it. And many of the descriptions of AAE reports include things that would be viewed as uh, machoistic activities. We see in the reports the removal of control, humiliation, and the infliction of pain. All of these are items that's often kind of an integral part of the machoism experience newman and baumeister suggest that the alien abduction proponents media and other sources have created sort of raw material for these uh, machoistic fantasy that as a way to cope with these kind of taboo acts uh, turn into aae experiences when they disconnect from their own mind to deal with this and then we have other explanations that Of course, some will be pure hoaxes. Something worth keeping in mind that some will, of course, use the AAE as their way to fame and money. Most likely, many of the AAE result from one, more, several, all of these type of explanations. Something worth remembering is that many of the AAE reporters, however, are in a sense, victims. Many are taken advantage of by the repressed memory experts, UFO authors, media companies, TV shows, all of this. And instead of getting the help to alleviate the stress that kind of feed these false narratives and all of this, they often go to sources that will worsen their anxiety. And this is clearly visible in the interview we see with Kim Carlsberg, for example. At least we know a bit more, and maybe even importantly, we have found the true origin of the gray alien. And it is, as we have seen, an invention to some extent based on old TV shows and the hypnosis of Barney Hill. And that's the end of the gray alien origin. But... Ancient astronaut theorists, of course, claim that there are historical sources for these creatures too. And after the break, we will look into the Hopi people's uh, idea about Kachina spirits. Hey, Archaeology Podcast fans. Anyone that's heard me on a show has likely heard me mention coffee one or probably a thousand times. Coffee, however awesome it is, has some downsides and should be consumed in moderation. That's why we partnered with Laird Superfoods. They've got lots of stuff, but their coffee and coffee creamers have been engineered to taste better, provide functional benefits, and don't contain any refined sugars. So, are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing, plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code ARCPODNETFEED at checkout and save 15% on your purchase today. You can also click the link in your show notes. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. Let's move into an area that's, well, uh, at least a bit archaeology-related. Maybe not that much, but uh, here we go. We're back with the Hopi tribe, a nation connected to the Pueblo people and part of the Uto-Azteca language. It's not the first time we have visited the Hopi people during our (laughs) journey here, but uh, Giorgio, well... I will let Giorgio describe why we are here. The translation for the word Kachina is very simple. It means teacher. The Kachina were not a part of the spiritual world, but they were in fact a part of the physical world. They descended from the sky in what the Hopi referred to as fiery shields. They would touch down on earth, spend time with human beings, teach them give them knowledge and then they would use the same quote-unquote shields to fly back into the sky and here is something that actually make me a little bit frustrated with this uh, ancient alien expert they don't even bother using a dictionary sure it's like 10 years so Giorgio well made his claim on tape but dictionaries for the hopi language have been in print for well at least sometimes. I used two uh, when researching this episode. One is called A Concise Hopi and English Lexicon that was published in 1985. And then I also used a Hopi dictionary from Arizona University Press that was published in 1998. Neither of these um, dictionaries uh, translate the Kachina word to teacher. The word for teacher is Tutukainaka. China or Katsina is uh, translated to being a spirit being. In a way, it's a type of well, God to make a very crude analogy there. but why are we talking about these spirit beings? Well, in part it is due to the depiction of these spirit. An ancient astronaut theorists claimed that, these depictions look like aliens the hope have for a long time depicted the katsina as a type of doll created from the cottonwood root and it has a very fascinating design that well it looks almost as it have a helmet on top and uh, due to some rorschach-esque practice the alien proponent claimed that these beings uh, are of course alien And the kachinas are depicted both in rock art and as dolls. The term doll might be a bit of a misnomer. You could refer to them as figurines also. But in a sense, it is a toy. It's given to children, but it's much, much more within the Hopi society and tradition. And to understand the doll or figure, we need to sort out what a kachina is. Something that is a bit more complex than one might think. And within the Hopi and Pueblo nations, we we have the Katsina represented in three ways. First is the spiritual beings that live in the collective mind and in the nature of the people of the Pueblo. Secondly, these beings are in turn impersonated by people who dress as these spirits. With the help of masks and other attributes on their clothes. And thirdly, we have these impersonators depicted as dolls or figures given to girls, especially in ceremonies. And the Katsina spirits are in turn split into different classes. The maybe most important is the chief or monkachina, and each clan would own at least one impersonation of this spirit, and only one person within the clan, either by heritage or election, would be allowed to impersonate this spirit. And there are about 30 of the monkachina. Often the clans have two or one or two that's connected to them specifically as a sort of supernatural parter or vuye And these Monkachinas also have, um, well, they usually have different part and uh, activities during the Hopi people's more vital ceremonies, such as the Sujal, the Povamo, and Niman. And one spirit is actually always represented in these and present in this festival, and it's called a toto. That's kind of a representation for the village chief. And these ceremonies often take the form of dancing and procession throughout the villages. And when you impersonate the spirit, you have a mask that corresponds with this spirit, and you have different symbols on your cloth, all of them connected to the spirit. So you will be able to distinguish between each of these. Different Kachina figures, just by the way they are dressed and what type of face they are currently having or type of mask. And another class among the Kachinas are the guardians and warriors, and some of these are almost equal in status as the Monkachina, but they still have a different standing in the hierarchy. So to say and the role of these spirits is to safeguard the mon class and to protect the ceremonies themselves from witchcraft often one of two guards will usually flank the rear of the procession to keep the dancers and ceremony safe and then we have a third class and that's the ogres and cannibals or the social and their function is to scare children into conformity in the village So if a child stray too far from the rightful path, they are usually brought in front of these rather scary beings who will then talk to them and try to put them back on the right path. And this particular group seems to have been borrowed from the Sunni people. And the list could continue for quite some time. We haven't brought up the clowns, the animals, or even the non-dance kachina. And there are some 200 recognized kachina that's documented within the Hopi tradition. And each have its own place and function within the belief. Right, so get back to the dolls. They are based on the impersonator's costume. So the dolls don't have a helmet, but they have a mask. In many cases, the dolls are supposed to be, well, made by the father in the family. But if time is lacking, he seems to be able to buy one. And the Kachina doll is then presented as a gift from the father to the daughter. But it's the Kachina impersonator that the doll represents that hands the doll to the girl it's not the father who hands it out it is the impersonator who does this and well the question is why this tradition take this type of form and we might find the answer amongst the most uh, popular kachinas that are handed out and those are Puvamau or the bean dance and Niman the home dance Both are connected to the agriculture and fertility rights. And within the Hopi tradition, life is above all the most good. And as bringers of life, the women in Hopi society have a rather special place. And the dolls seems to or could be gifted as a way to ensure that food and other blessings multiply. Because The children are often taught that what the doll touches will multiply later on. In the tradition, the casinas are bringers of life, and women have the same status there. And the interesting part is that while the dolls have this type of supernatural connection, the dolls themselves are not sacred objects, in a sense. There's no ritual songs or anything else connected to creating a Kachina dolls. And they seem to exist on an interesting plane of being both a well supernatural object and a child's toy at the same time. And when the girls get the dolls, boys usually get a bow and arrow from their father. Interestingly, warfare and childbearing seem to be talked about in more or less the same way. Both activities, and might not be the best word there <laughs> again, but both of these activities incorporate blood and life threatening danger. And the purification rite is a remarkable symbol between a warrior and a woman giving birth. And when I say that a Hopi culture, put the women in a different standing compared to other cultures. I really mean it. It it is the woman who is the head of the house. And when a couple gets married, it is the woman who brings the husband home to her family. So, for example, in many European cultures, it was the other way around. When a man got married, he brought the wife into his family family but this is the other way around and if there's any surplus of food or other items within the fa- family they belong to the women and as we can see here the kachina dolls are way more complex than what the ancient alien proponents resuggest really suggest that they are and the kachina dolls are a integral part of the Hopi society and have a symbolist that connects throughout the whole culture, almost like a spider web. And the meaning of the Kachina doll is found within Hopi kinship spirit and their view of the natural world. Yeah, so that is just representation of alien being is a way too simplistic explanation that really don't work well with the reality of the Hopi people's um, Experiences in many cases from what I see from the research that have been done on the society, and I have not forgotten about Giorgio's claim about fiery shield that he described. I could not find a reference to the story he is talking about, but I know that in the Hopi tongue, the flying shields are referred to as uh, patuwata, and it translates to a flying shield or ripples on the water. And what Giorgio is not mentioning is that shaman often use these shields to traverse to the heavenly spirits, and that these shields are made out of cotton, and is more or less woven like a wedding dress. There's also a few other flying things within the Hopi pantheon, especially regarding gourds and that certain beings can fly on top of them, but he left that out. So... Are the Hopi traditions and Kachinas evidence of gray aliens? No, it's still the gray aliens come from the Betty and Barney Hill hypnosis. It doesn't really fit within the Hopi tradition. But are we saving the best evidence for lost? Could DNA prove that uh, the gray alien hypothesis is correct? Stay tuned after these messages and find out. Welcome to Peru. Could it be that evidence of uh, ancient grey aliens is found over here? Let's listen to David Childress and see what the claim is to start with. One of the things that you see around the pyramids here on coastal Peru is that they're associated with these skulls. It would seem that those elongated skulls were half alien half human and in fact some of the recent dna testing that's been done here in peru is indicating that these people are somehow half human and half some other race so there's a bunch of things going on here we have pyramids we have elongated skulls and we have dna testing what we don't know is a time and a place or we know it's peru but and that we're in the coastal region but peru's coast is fairly large and we don't know what period we are in this venus i believe is intended in a way that way can connect the origin of the pyramids with aliens and alien visitors and that way the alien visitors could have mated with us humans as we know by now according to the ancient also not theory, monumental building is something human simply cannot do and must have been introduced by aliens. Note that there's. Hilris is also trying to connect the pyramids to burials. We will return to all of this in just a moment. Let's start with the Peruvian pyramids, and I used to term pyramid a bit fast and loose here. What is referred to as a uh, pyramid is in Peru is well not really comparable to the true pyramids we see in ancient Egypt, for example. What we find here resembles a bit more what we find in Mesoamerica, but well, in many cases I would more describe them more as uh, well step mounds or step temples. I've also seen uh, well in books and articles that uh, different authors. Uh, tend to switch between the term pyramid and mound however they are most often rectangular in shape and consisting on one or two platforms with a staircase and what is the earliest date for these type of monumental structures and the exciting part is that well there is some exploration ongoing here and the date is uh, slowly being pushed back We currently find Peru's first monumental construction during the late archaic or the late uh, pre-ceramic period in uh, Banduria in the Huacho region. And the earliest radium carbon datings on the site is around the 3,100 to 2,800 calibrated BCE. And the site has 10 structures consisting of four main mounds between eight and twelve meters high and these mounds or pyramids if you want to call it that were well constructed using the natural mound as a foundation and then they use layers of filling of sand and gravel with the outside layer consisting of rocks not larger than well one person could easily carry one or two of these that they then put in place using a mortar made out of clay and salt grass. And something else that's starting to come uh, around this time is uh, other society and cultures. For example, the Caral Supé Society in the North Chico region. Much work in the area has been done by Ruth Shady Solis, who kind of paved way for later research in North Chico. And she co-authored a 2001 paper with... Uh, Winifred Kramer and Jonathan Haas, who both of them have also done a lot of work in the area. Even if uh, Solis, Kramer and Haas started as a team building on Ruth Solis' work, the cooperation was a bit short-lived and has, uh, well, turned into a pretty famous archaeology feud. It may be worth <laughs> revisiting that at a later point. Now, the earliest signs of buildings and communal projects start in this area around 3100 BCE, the same time where we see the temples being built in Bandoria. Pyramids-like structures, however, were not built in this area until 2500 BCE. From what I can tell, these platform mound have a similar construction style as we find in Barudia. And the largest city here was Caral, uh, where at its height lived some 3,000 people. And one of the more famous platform temples uh, or platform pyramids incorporate even an oval amphitheater. But instead of the half, it's full. Where we have found flutes made out of condor and pelican bones. And we also have found within this section... Uh, examples of blue whale vertebrae, and that they were used uh, as stool basically and it seems to have been limited for nobility or some sort of religious upper class but here we can again see a slow and steady evolution of construction going back to 3000 BCE the issue is that the culture's construction these buildings did not practice head binding or elongated skull from what I can tell this practice we mostly see in the Paracas and Nazca cultures. That's those start to pop up some thousand years after the end of the Caral superculture. While the Paracas culture did build platform mounds, I don't see any pyramid-shaped structure within their society. And this is in contrast to, for example, the Macha culture, who built this wonderful adobe pyramids but they did not practice head binding but uh, then we have the nazca who are the inheritance of the paracas culture they did elongate the skull but they only built pyramids at one place and that it's uh, a and the most famous part there is known as the Great the great temple and is kind of the city's crown and the great temple is well kind of built like a step pyramid but half of the construction is supported by the mountain so it's kind of a half pyramid but this grand construction was built in several stages and seemed to have a ceremonial function a civil function for nobility a residential and a funerary part and a tomb that seems to predate the construction, was found at the top of the hill. Larger burials have been found after, but it seems as the temple was not built as a tomb per se, as uh, its uh, original function. It was built as a temple or even a noble place for nobles. But the temple was not built as a grave to start with. And I think it's worth stressing that the Nazca did not build the pyramids as tombs, They had a different function, and we know quite a bit about the Nazca burial pattern. And they primarily consist of funerary urns, pit burials, and nobility chamber tombs. The funerary urn seems to have been reserved to young individuals and children. The most common tomb we find is, of course, the pit burials. And then the nobility who could afford some more elaborate tomb could build themselves these chamber tombs. Note that the chamber tomb is not a pyramid, it's just a simple chamber built above ground often. However, there is an exception to these burial fa- forms, and we found it in La Munja, where the Nazca people built mausoleums. So they built uh, pit burials, but they added a structure on top that incorporated bench and other things much like the mausoleums we see in some cemeteries today. With all of this mentioned, towards the end of the Nazca culture, when structures started to be abandoned, we began to see, well, a um, resurgence of burials being constructed close to the Quachi Pyramid. question is, was it a new religious function or some sort of tribute to the good old days? Or really, why was it just... Um, well, free real estate, and they didn't want to go too much out of time to bury people. We can't really tell. So Schilder's connection between the Peruvian pyramids and burials are not as straightforward as he indicates. As we know, the pyramid construct, and even if, well, some cultures did build some pyramids and practice the elongated skull, the burials were secondary to these mounds. But how about the DNA test that Childress referred to? First of all, I'm not sure what test he really (laughs) refers to. From what I can tell, there wasn't really much of any testing at this point when he said this. Not even Brian Foerster made any claims to having done DNA tests in his 2015 book. If he had access to tests, I'm confident that he would have promoted it several times throughout the book, especially since he then afterwards go on claiming that he had done DNA tests that proved that five Peruvian skulls were not humans, or at least did not originate from Peru. Brian Forrester obtained the samples from the official-sounding Paracas History Museum, and this is a small private museum created by Juan Navarro Hierro who markets the place kind of by letting ancient alien theorists play science with his collection of human remains. And as far as I can tell, Brian Fuerst has not published any of the results from the DNA test that he has performed. Of course, he has done some YouTube videos and Facebook posts on it and, you know, been interviewed in places like Ancient Origins, but he has not done any official publication of them. And I mean, if he had the DNA evidence he claimed to have, I hardly believe a journal would refuse to publish it if it was properly done. I think the issue there is the peer review process and that his uh, well test would be basically slaughtered in it. <laughs> but uh, from the little that Forrester has put up, there is a lot of red flags there that we should bring up. So how were the samples obtained? Now, DNA samples are very, very sensitive, and contamination can happen really easy and rather quickly. And I get a bit suspicious when I see on the Paracas History Museum's Facebook page that Childress and Sokolos handle some of the remains without gloves or any protection at all. So who knows how much contamination has been done by people just handling these remains. I think more accurately manhandling, but. Okay, especially since um, the origin also seems a bit dubious. I'm not sure how, where, well, um, these uh, human remains were found or obtained. However, Jennifer Raff, Dr. Jennifer Raff, an uh, ancient DNA expert, found a video what appears to document parts of uh, Forrester's, uh, well, how he obtained these samples and First of all, they needlessly disassemble a child's remains while, well, taking samples without adequate protection. And within the video, we see several people in the room and only two of them wear masks and gloves to cover, well, hands and mouth. But there's a lot of exposed skin, hair and, well, people just breathing and talking over it. And as Dr. Raff points out, contaminate these samples. Jennifer Raff points out in her article that uh, to sample DNA properly, you must, ne- you must dress for the occasion, so to say. And when you want to sample DNA, you have to wear fully covering protection clothes. And even then, there are chances of contaminations. And as we see in this video from brian forrester they don't really take any precautions at all an archaeologist called fagan also found a now deleted facebook post that seemed to show some of the result of well forrester's dna result as fagan points out they only have one sample that's stated itself a bit problematic and there's also evidence of the contamination that dr Raff mentioned especially we see u2e1 and h and r strains that's found specifically among british and european people and if we go back to the video that i mentioned we see several of what seems to be british and european people or well british european ancestry people within the room themselves that of course every each one of them could have uh, contaminated the sample and uh, Fagan also continued to, well, point out several other uh, flaws with uh, the different uh, samples and results. Much of it is that the even the test result state that some contamination seems to have occurred, and some samples were too degraded, and it's really hard to say where these samples originate from. And another indicator that Forrester's evidence is at best giving him some uh, well benefit of a doubt contaminated is newly published test from Jessica Thornton et al. who were using Raymond spectroscopy and STR analysis. And they can conclude that the elongated skulls that they were testing uh, were hundred percent human and not weird did not show any weird strains within the dna to quote themselves moreover no foreign dna or unusual profiles were observed in any of the paracas samples tested and to this that we actually have a quite good understanding on how the paracas and nazca culture created these elongated skulls we have examples of peruvian cribs that utilized ropes cushions and boards as described by for example uh, Weiss in 1961. And we have different cultures that achieve uh, well this type of look, and we also have different cultures that achieve similar looks with different types of methods. As I mentioned in previous episode, elongated skull was actually not unusual in Europe either. For example, in Toulouse, artificial cranial deformation was uh, performed until well the twentieth century. So much that it's that this shape of a uh, head was referred to as the toulouse deformity. And I think here we can actually put an end to the alien discussion around artificial cranial deformation. It's clear that Childress, as we heard in the beginning of this section, was wrong on well, <laughs> basically every single point that he made. And on that we will close this episode for this time. The grey alien is, well. A modern creation and the historical claims by, that's may being made by the alien theories have been proven well wrong at best i would say now make sure to return for another installment of digging up ancient aliens but till then remember to leave a positive review anywhere you can such as itunes spotify or to your friend at the trench I would also recommend visiting diggingupancientaliens.com to find more info about me and the podcast. You also find me on most social media sites. And if you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or want to write that email in all caps, you find my contact info on the website. There you also find sources and resources that I use to create this podcast and uh, a bit more of some more reading suggestions. And if you want to support the show, a bit extra, you can uh, join a Patreon or become a member and that way unlock a bit longer episodes, bonus content and all of that. Or you head over to the Archaeological Podcast Network, become a member there. You get the same boons, plus you unlock access to all the other stuff that the network puts out. You get some great value. You're supporting good content. Check it out if you want. Sandra Martellor created the intro music, and her outro is made by the band Troutsgroove, who sings their song Tinfoil Hat. Link to both of these artists can be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep shoveling that science. <speaking in>